I am Plata on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Michael Crummie joins me again. The acclaimed writer recently published his latest novel, The Adversary. It's about a man and a woman who hate one another, who happen to be brother and sister. I'll get Michael to tell us as much as he'd like about the story, about the rich setting he places his character, not just in this book, but in the uh, other works that evoke the isolation and darkness of uh, an outport on uh, Newfoundland's northern coast a couple of hundred years ago. I'll ask Michael about the dynamics between the two central characters in the book and the themes of hatred, power, family, and corruption, and how what's happening around us today might have influenced this book. I'll ask him about the role of faith and organized religion uh, has in this book, and how each of the characters feel its influence in their lives and how they express their power. The book has gotten a lot of good notices already and is a, a bestseller. Michael Crummie is the author of seven books of poetry and five previous novels, including River Thieves Galore and Sweetland. His work is always highly regarded and finalists for the major book prizes here as well as abroad. This new book is published by Knopf Canada. We taped this interview late last month with Michael joining me from Toronto. Please uh, welcome back to the Plant Online program, Michael Crummie. Mr. Crummie, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Are you in Toronto? I'm in Toronto now, just at the start of this little uh, publicity tour for the book, yeah. Yeah, so it's been, it's been a, a, about four years since your last book. What is it like getting back to, say, the, the, the grind of, uh, say, going out and promoting books? Um, it's a bit surreal. You know, I, I, I published a book of poetry with Anansi last summer, uh-huh. and it was, it was almost like nothing happened, and that's more my sense of what being a writer is like. <laughs> yeah. to, to actually be out and talking to people, it's uh, an adjustment. Uh-huh. You know, I spend most of my time sitting alone in a room. So, But I, uh, it's exciting to, to have the book out in the world and to be speaking to people who've actually read it. Yeah. So that's, that's really gratifying. So I'm in the midst of, of reading the book right now. I, I, I try not to finish the books because if, if I do, I end up giving away something during the interview. <laughs> But um, I, I just uh, um, I, I love the book. It, it's it's a, such an evocative book. The characters are so rich. The setting is is tremendous, which I'll ask you about in a sec. Um, sure. You um, do not seem to be as dark as your books. Um, does that does that you do you get asked like about that from time to time? Um, no, I don't think anyone's ever asked me that. <laughs> Um, I mean, I don't, I don't think I am as dark as my books, but, but I do think the world is, mm. you know. I do think that, and with this book in particular, um, I really feel, I mean, I know it's set 200 years ago, but it was in many ways a deliberate attempt to take the worst of the world we've all been living through the last eight or ten years and, and uh, play it out in miniature. Right to have yeah. the same dynamics that we see happening on a worldwide scale, countrywide scales, happening in this tiny outport in in northeastern Newfoundland. So, so, so when you play it out as you do in, through, through the writing of a book like *The Adversary*, um, do you understand why people do bad things? Um, well, I mean, I think there there are all kinds of reasons that people do bad things. Um, I think some of them deserve sympathy, 
and some don't. And I, I feel like in this book, well, there are two main characters in this book, right? Or two characters at the center of the book. Mm-hmm. And um, there's the Abe Strap, and then there's the Widow Kane. And I feel like both of those people um, do bad things for reasons that don't deserve any sympathy. You know, I think that like a lot of people who find themselves uh, in the political field or in uh, in uh, the higher echelons of some economic endeavors, their only interest is in getting and keeping power. And in fact, it feels like they are incapable of having a real human relationship with anything outside themselves. All of their relationships are transactional. Mm. And uh, and when they're looking at the world, um, all they're thinking is, how can I use what's in front of me? And they're really quite uh, brutal in their willingness to do anything with what's in front of them if it serves their interests. So I, I think I was wanting to write a book where that kind of way of being in the world was at the center of it. But as a writer, of course, that's kind of, you know, I, was, I wasn't sure how that was going to play out because those kinds of characters are a bit of a dead end for writers. You know, they're, they're, um, they don't have an interior life particularly, and they don't change. They're exactly the same at the beginning of the book as they are at the end. So for me, the what I was interested in uh, was the characters who end up uh, sucked into the orbit of those two black holes. Why? Why do they end up there? How do they find themselves working with or dragged along by one or of those two people? And what does that do to them? Like, in what ways does it uh, misshape them, or in some cases, how does it destroy them? So that was really the, for me, the movement of the book. There's a lot of moving parts. All of the moving parts are people who are somehow dragged into the world of, of that that brother and sister who are out to destroy one another, basically. Yeah, yeah. And they are two characters that, that um, uh, the, the reader finds little sympathy with either of them, and yet mm-hmm. they're intensely fascinating. Uh, from from the way they look or the way they they comport themselves in in, in this society that, that that is 200 years old, um, they uh, I was going to ask you about um, the role that faith or religion um, played in say shaping how they view life or or how they they conduct themselves in in this time and place. Right. Uh, is is that a big part of how they ended up even? Well, my sense of both of them uh, is that um, their their relationship to the... I mean, religion would have been very uh, central to life in a community like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there were two congregations in the, in the community in the book. There's the Church of England, mm-hmm. and the Beatle is the head of the church in that community, and then there are Quakers. Um, and for I think for both... Abe and the widow, they look at those institutions as opportunities for power. Uh, and I don't feel like they have any real religious um, 
feeling at all. And I think, you, I mean, all you have to do is look at the way that um, particularly fascist politicians use mm. religion as a tool of power. I mean, uh, when you see someone like Putin lighting candles in a church, uh, that's a person with no internal life, and he has no religious belief whatsoever, but he knows that making people think he does is a way of exerting power in that society. And if you look at Donald Trump holding the Bible upside down outside the church, <laughs> yeah. again, that's, I mean, unbelievably cynical. And, um, uh, and to think that that person has any interior life that involves some kind of religious faith, you, I think you have to be a little bit stupid. But he knows that's a locus of power among his base, so he goes through the motions. And I think that um, both Abe and the widow, uh, they don't go through the motions quite as much as, as either of those, those two men in our current reality seem yeah. to do. Um, but, you know, Donald Trump, he doesn't even go to church. He just holds the Bible upside down every now and then. Yeah, yeah. You know, and Abe has no interest in church, but he likes having the beetle on his side. And, uh, and of course, the widow uh, takes up with the Quakers partly because they allow a woman to have more say over her life than anybody else in that society, but also because she knows that if she wants to control some power in that community, she has to hook up with the single merchant who is a Quaker. So, again, it's an incredibly cynical move on her part. To, to take up with what should be, if it's done honestly, and uh, a sincere, life-changing belief system. But for both of them, again, I think they're incapable of anything of the sort. Um, as I'm reading the book, I, I find it just the setting itself quite evocative. Um, it's bleak. Um, uh, yeah, there, there's a little bit of humor. I mean, I guess that's life itself for a lot of people. Um, I, I found it melancholy, but it's like I knew it somehow. Then I realized as I was reading, um, you've just done such a very fine job at setting the scene and, and, and making me feel like I'm there. How do you do that with, with the effect that you have? I mean, it just, it just seems effortless when you write. Uh, well, thanks. I, I'm... I, I mean, it's one of those things that, um, you know, some, I'm starting to get people who are angry at me because I'm, uh, I'm starting to seem prolific or something. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I understand that anger. I've always, I've always felt a little bit of jealousy about people who seem to be able to pump out books effortlessly. Mm -hmm. um, but part of it, I think, Joe, is that I've, I've been doing it for a long time. You know, so I, I could say it took me six or eight months to write this book, but in actual fact, it took me 40. Mm. Because everything that I've learned through all of the writing that I've done through those decades, I'm pouring into um, hopefully being able to place a reader in a room or on a coastline and make that feel real to them. Or having two people have a conversation and making that feel real and genuine. To a reader, um, but the actual nuts and bolts of it, you know, I, it's really difficult for me to write it and say, well, I, I'm. It's kind of 
always been fairly intuitive. Mm. And uh, part of it, of course, is just uh, scut work. It's research. It's like um, figuring out how people lived at the time, how they dressed, what their houses were like, how they spoke, and then using those details in a way that feels genuine for the characters in the book. And hopefully, uh, if you do your research well enough and if you've worked hard enough, um, you put those things together and it feels to a reader like they're in the book. Like, I I know I'm enjoying a book when I forget that I'm reading. Mm. You know? And I'm, I'm, it's like there's a movie playing in my head instead of I'm sitting in a chair and I have a book open and I'm reading words. And I do hope um, that that's something that people who read these books uh, are able to experience, at least for some of that. You know, the thing that I'm enjoying a great deal is, is the language. I mean, yeah. your, your love, your reverence for words, it's on display in this book. Um, and you use words in that playful or brutal way uh, to get the storing, storytelling done. But, but I guess um, that, that's part of the research because that's how people talked back then. Is that right? Yeah, well, I mean, I, as I've been saying uh, to a number of people, uh, like the Dictionary of Newfoundland English has been one of my mainstays for for 30 years. And that's uh, that's like a scholarly compendium of all of the ways that Newfoundlanders and Labradorians have adapted the English language since Europeans settled in Newfoundland, like three or four hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is not in use anymore. But the dictionary makes it available to me, thankfully. And every novel I've written, I have spent quite a bit of time um, going through that book. And for The Innocence and for this book, um, of course, a lot of the characters are actually European. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, so I went looking for something that might do the same thing for me for how people from Britain and English speakers from Ireland might have spoke. And I found this fantastic uh, dictionary. It's the Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue, which was compiled in, I think, 1790-something. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's just a dictionary that uh, collected words and phrases that people, that common people spoke, people on the docks or in the bars or in the brothels, the way they would have talked to one another. And I just ransacked that dictionary. I mean, it was just unbelievably creative and entertaining and it also just allowed me to ground those characters in the time in a way that nothing else i think would have allowed so so i remember seeing the the f word the word fuck early on in the book and and um because it's set 200 years ago i I wondered um if uh because it's used today is is considered improper in 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 sort of public context um was it considered uh, as vulgar as it is now, say? Um, I, it was in use, mm-hmm. but it, it was not as commonly used. And there was a, um, a a number of different words that were used to describe it in a sexual context. Uh-huh. That, uh, Like I think swive, S-W-I-V-E, was the most common vulgar way to refer to having sexual relations. Um but but the F word was definitely around and definitely in use at the time, yeah. So so it was, um, uh, say, a um, an adjective not an, uh, used in, say, the, the noun context of... of um... 
like getting screwed over or something like that by by right right uh, I can't speak authoritatively to that one way or the other. I see. I'm not sure. <laughs> but it's, just, it's it's one of those things that 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 hit me early. I mean, I understood what the character was saying, and then then as I was thinking about it, I wondered, you know, um, does it mean the same thing today as it did then? And and, and right. again, it, it, it's words like that 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 come up during the book that just fascinated me as 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 as, as I'm reading the book. Um, it, uh, the other thing I was wondering, Michael, is is um, if you lived in another place, say, yeah. If you came from a place other than Newfoundland, do you, th- do you think that would uh, cha- have changed your writing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and in fact, I've said for a long time that if I had been born somewhere other than Newfoundland, I don't, I don't know that I would have much of interest to say as a writer. You know, like I feel like the part of the reason for the success success of the books that I've written, um, I think, uh, is down to how unique and unusual um, the culture of Newfoundland uh, is and has been, you know, and that I'm just mining that in a way that uh, allows people, both from Newfoundland and from elsewhere, luckily, um, to access that world. and I, yeah, I honestly don't know where I would be as a writer if Newfoundland wasn't at the heart of what I'm doing all the time. Yeah, I kind of wondered if you'd grown up, say, in a sunnier place. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it would probably, I probably would have been outdoors a lot more and uh, a lot less interested in sitting in a room by myself for hours and hours and months at a time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm sure you're asked if you have siblings. On this book tour, or you, or you will be asked that. I mean, uh, uh, right? Were you an only child, or you had you, you had siblings, right? I have three brothers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but I did. I do remember because uh, the last book. I mean, this book, in a way, is a companion piece to the Innocence, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, and the Innocence is a, a story about a brother and sister who uh, are orphans uh, in a tiny cove uh, a couple of hundred years ago, and. And the sister has a child. And I remember walking home, uh, and there was a, a, a guy I know just from him walking his dog around the neighborhood. And he said, listen, uh, I was just wondering, do you have a sister? And I said, no, no, I don't. I've got brothers. And he said, oh. He said, I'm glad to hear that because I just finished your book. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think uh, it would have been a much more complicated book to write if I did have a sister, just because I'd be terrified of people making that, drawing yeah. that inference. Yeah. For people yeah. listening to us, they have to read The Innocents uh, yes. to find out what this is all about. Um, <laughs> the um, th- This hatred that Abe and the Widow Canes have, um, this is a brother and sister who, who really despise one another. Yeah. Um, do, do you think this hatred is a lot more visceral because they're related? Um, I mean, certainly that, I think in that context, uh, that is part of the reason they despise each other so much, because they know they're connected in a way they're helpless to erase, that the blood is some, the blood between them is something that they're helpless to change and that they're uh, ashamed of or and or furious about the thought that a person that awful or who is that unnatural 
is connected to them is something that they can't get past. And I think that that does fuel for them both this sense that this is the person in the world I I despise the most. And I think, um, you know, I think family... Uh, Family is always a bit of a two-edged sword, you know, like that connection is indelible. And when it's great, that connection is great. Yeah. Uh, but when that connection goes badly, um, the fact that it's indelible, I think, is really hard to make peace with. Yeah, and in a way I can see how easy it could get to that. Because, I mean, you know, as kids you can playfully hate a sibling. I'm an only child. Um, you can playfully hate someone else that you're related to. Right. But as right. you get older, that, that you, you don't have to fake that as much anymore, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And in this case, of course, like the, the innocence was uh, a kind of twisted Adam and Eve story. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, I deliberately set out to write a book that was the exact mirror opposite of that. So this is a Cain and Abel story. And... Um, and the part of the hatred between them is that the offering of one person is made and accepted, and the offering of the other person is made and rejected. And there's no logical reason for it. Like, even in the Bible, no, there's no explanation for why one offering is rejected. Yeah. And, and, so in, and in this case, that the illogicality of it is part of what fuels the animosity between those two. I can't wait to get back to reading this book. I'm enjoying it a great deal. Michael, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you again. Continue yes. good luck with the book. All the best. Thanks, Joe. I really appreciate the chance to talk to you. The book is called The Adversary. It's published by Knopf Canada. Its uh, author, Michael Crummy, joined me on the line from Toronto in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planta.